for the 14th time, this is 99th episode. Let's jump into it. I pretty much only drink hot coffee. So it could be 110 degrees out and I'd be like, yeah, hot coffee sounds good. I'd rather have That's like me for ice coffee. I drink ice coffee all the I don't switch the hot one. Right. Well, I'm I'm the hot one. You're the cold one. There we go. Yeah. At least so, with uh, coffee. <laughs> so we discussed. So uh, a little behind the scenes peek for people who aren't going to realize that um, there's any difference because we're still releasing episodes on our cadence. But we just recorded a few days ago because last week when we normally record we couldn't. Uh, I believe that I had to work. I'm assuming. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so we ended up substituting a few oh no you had to you had something you had to do that's what i was i couldn't remember for the life of me um but anyways so i can't we, remember we, what i had to do now you, you, <laughs> you had to take your wife somewhere oh yeah that's right yeah. that's right yeah uh but yeah so anyway so uh we recorded a few days later and i was assuming we weren't going to record today which is a, a sunday morning once again mm-hmm. because we just recorded a few days ago but you wanted to because uh we both just love we enjoy this, this. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> we're, so, we're, do- uh, we're do- <laughs> not doing this for the fame and riches believe it or not <laughs> we're doing it because we actually enjoy it yeah i have received very little fame and uh much less riches but i have gotten uh, the occasional uh, gift of a comic book so you know, oh cool yeah yeah not not from this podcast yet, no but, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> <get there. laughs> but um anyways um in america so- first you start the podcast <laughs> Then you get the money. <laughs> then you get the fame. <laughs> but and, uh, we'll see. Is all everything I've learned from uh, watching Conan O'Brien and seeing how his career has gone on the trajectory he hoped. Uh, um, yes. So, anyways, yeah. So we just recorded. We we don't really have new material to talk about. Although uh, I did actually finish something in between, and I could have something to talk about, but we'll save that for next time. Okay. Sounds good. So I said, why don't we try to do something different here? So we're going to try doing uh, an episode of top tens of a sort. Now, it's a lot of work to actually try to make your own top ten list about something. And honestly, I I feel like uh, it having to be your actual top ten is actually not conducive to conversation as much. Because you feel, you know, you feel more pinned down. You put more work into just trying to think about what would be on the list. Um, But, like... We're going to have kind of two stages to this that we're trying out. One is where we're just going to randomly free associate and think about things that would be on a top 10 for us. That'll great conversation. After we do that for a little bit, uh, you're going to give me a top 10 challenge. So something where I have to list 10 things that I think would be on that list for, for myself and, uh, and vice versa. So that's where it's a challenge to each other. Challenges are fun. We're going to see how this works. Maybe it doesn't work well. Maybe we do something different next time we try something like this. But here we go. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So that was my idea. Uh, to give you an example, if we're just having a conversation here and we're thinking about things that we like, um, I might be thinking about – I know you're not a sports guy like I am, um, but for me, this is uh, – uh, there's a lot of sports stuff going on. Uh, the Lakers play game three of the NBA Finals tonight. means a lot to me. Um, they're most likely going to easily win this series because uh, not only were they probably the better team anyways, but Miami's got a lot of injuries. But that doesn't dull anything for me. Like, I, you know, Lakers is in my blood. I was born with them. So I, I've been thinking about, like, some of my top ten sports moments uh, since we talked about this yesterday. Hmm. Um, right now, this is one. Seeing Like, I haven't watched live basketball like I am right now in probably – 
a decade, pretty much, because it was about a decade ago that the Lakers beat the Celtics in the NBA Finals to win their 16th championship. Uh, the year after that, I saw a little bit, but we were in the process of moving to Maine, and then by the year after that was the, the Lakers weren't even com- you know very competitive. Like they didn't make the playoffs again after that. Um, uh, Kobe got injured, even when he came back from from serious injuries, like they just couldn't get back there. So, anyways, watching this right now is fantastic. I've never really watched Anthony Davis play, and he's just like poetry on the court. Like, he's beautiful to watch. And then watching LeBron be out there, and like, obviously, he's amazing. But watching how he's a leader is amazing, too. Because I've, even though I've watched basketball some over the last 10 years, it has been with the same heart, and LeBron hasn't been on my team. So, like, really watching it closely right now is pretty cool. So it got me thinking about some of these moments, and uh, one thing is I've been watching it. My dad got Hulu Live TV. I got Hulu Live TV. We're on opposite coasts, but we'll be texting back and forth some during the game. And 10 years ago, when they beat the Celtics, I watched it with my dad. I watched Game 7 with my dad, and I go over there, and the it was a tough game. The Lakers start falling behind a little bit. And it just is miserable because my dad's the type that uh, if the game's not going good, he just starts complaining about everything. And I'm like, I should oh, watch this with him. Oh, he's no, just that's, com- that's and just, yeah, yeah. just making it so much worse. But then the Lakers pull it out and they win the game. And so then I was like, oh, I'm so glad I came over here to watch this. You know? <laughs> okay, cool. And um, I remember, so uh, I was living in Santa Clarita then. My dad uh, was in Canyon Country. I lived in Valencia. So basically like, halfway across the the valley um so santa clarita uh some people might know but santa clarita is like a big circle like they're literally like uh candy country and valencia are like two opposite sides of the circle so uh i am driving home after the game and it was the most euphoric feeling i've ever had just being so happy that they won it was a seven game series so if they lost it would they would have lost it would have been done uh-huh uh, so it basically it went as as far as it could. You know there was adversity all throughout. So and sports moments are the best when you really don't like when it, it's you really really could lose it. You know like you have to have the most tension for it to be the best payoff. Like all I can equate it to is the the scene in in uh, was a Dark Knight um, when Joker is driving through town in the cop car and he's just hanging his head out the window and like he just looks euphoric and like <laughs> okay. even though like he's the you know murderous bad guy you're just like man he just he looks so happy right now that, you that's know? strange that that's your go to I'm so happy moment <laughs> well, it, that's what it that's it just it was that kind of like uh, I mean because in in the movie I believe he's driving through town and like stuff's exploding around him and stuff like yeah that, but, like, he's sure just yeah. in phase he's just in the moment of pure joy right. That's yeah. what it was like. I mean, seriously, people honking at each other. Every, like, I mean, driving through town, like everybody was celebrating on the road. It was crazy. I've never, and the thing is, is I'll never experience something like that again because I don't live where my teams are anymore. Yeah. So, like, I, even if it was the same scenario, I could never be in the middle of it again. So that that's a moment to me that has to be uh, probably my top sports moment ever. Is that one right there? So that that's an example of a uh, of you know, if we're talking top ten things. It doesn't. We're not trying to make a whole list, but like, hey, man, here's a, a moment that would be on it for me. For instance, and, if if we were to make a top ten of this category, this is an item that would definitely be on the top ten list. So it's kind of like we're taking individual entries from potential top ten lists that could exist. Mm-hmm. And but exactly. it it, re- it relieves us of the pressure of coming up with the other nine. 
Exactly, yeah, and yeah. I might be able to rattle off a few others after a talking point like that. Like, I'd say one thing I've been thinking about, and this is a mix between sports and uh, this this player being on my mind because of uh, what's going on with social justice in our world, uh, but Colin Kaepernick was, I'm a 49ers fan, and he was our, our quarterback for, I think, like two really good years, and then stuff started turning sour uh, because of problems with the team ultimately was the, the big problem, and a lot of players tiring. But he, like destroyed the Packers every time we played them during that that good window. Uh, there was a game where he rushed for 181 yards, which was the record for most rushing yards by a quarterback in a game. Oh, wow. There was a, another game where – so this is against the Packers. So Aaron Rodgers is their quarterback, one of the, the best ever. And uh, in this one game, Colin Kaepernick had better quarterback stats than Aaron Rodgers. So he was the better quarterback in the game. Plus – better rushing stats than the whole Green Bay Packers rushing offense. So he basically single-handedly was the best player offensively in the game in every way, shape, and form. Hmm. Um, so th- that, that like just that kind of window would definitely be a top 10 sports thing for me. Is um, I grew up with the Packers, like the era when I was starting to really follow the 49ers, the Packers kept on knocking us out of the playoffs. So like I have a little bit of that like uh, rivalry resentment towards them. And uh, so, yeah, it was just really satisfying. So there's a couple of examples for me, and I don't want to keep this on sports because I know that's not particularly interesting to, to you or probably our listeners. Sure, but I'll mention a couple of sports things that I, I distinctly remember. One is similar to your story about driving around Santa Clarita, but where I was seemed like the only person who didn't care, <laughs> um, which is when it was, it was either 2010 or 2012. I forget which year when the Giants won the World Series. And at this time, I, I lived in San Francisco, worked in San Francisco, and my commute was a 20-minute walk from my downtown apartment to my downtown workplace. So... I was very much always just walking around the city and and just part of that city. And while I was walking home from work is when the Giants won the World Series. (laughs) And the entire city just spontaneously went nuts. Just everybody yelling and cheering. Everyone driving, honking horns. There were fire department trucks just like doing circles around Union Square with their sirens going and waving flags just in celebration. Everybody was so, so excited. And I I don't, I'm not a Giants fan. So I was just kind of like, okay, well, I guess that's great for them. But uh, (laughs) yeah. That, that's a good story. That's funny. I, I kind of missed out on that move into Maine uh, because by the time I moved here, like the Patriots were in the midst of their dynasty. The Red Sox had won a couple of World Series. So, you know, the the Celtics, like there there wasn't any of that, hey, we haven't been here in so long feeling. It's like, yes, they've won championships um, since I've been here with, you know, I mean, definitely the, the Red Sox have won, the, the Patriots have won. But it's not the same when you're living in that spot. You know, it's it's very different when it's like, I mean, the Giants, I think when they won that one, they hadn't been in that position at the very least in a very, very long time. Yeah, a very long time, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, the year I moved here, though, was the year that the Bruins won the Stanley Cup, and that was actually the year I got into hockey, and I was following both the Bruins and the Kings. The Kings got eliminated from the playoffs uh, before we left California, and then I was just kind of following what was happening while we were moving out here. And we got settled and got cable, uh, which is the the last time I had cable was this apartment that we lived in. 
Um, we got cable in time for me to see Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals and then the whole Stanley Cup. And that Stanley Cup was a fantastic series, story-wise, too, because the Vancouver Canucks were like the, the evil team that nobody liked except for their fans. Um, and, you know, the Bruins were the underdogs, and it went seven games. Uh, the turning point in the series um, when the Bruins started, because I think they went down 2-0 because they played the first two games in Vancouver, and then a dirty play seriously concussed one of their players, and the team rallied around that because they were struggling in that game three, and they rallied around that, and that changed the momentum in the series. And even though Vancouver ended up winning their next home game, Bruins won all their home games, and then in game seven just like completely controlled it. Um, so it was. It came down to the wire. Game seven wasn't stressful because they Bruins never were out of control of it. But like it still, it came down to that game seven. But just like everything about it, built a good story, and it was really exciting. But um, I also like I just moved here, and so like I wasn't really settled in yet enough to like enjoy the the ambiance around me. But it was cool to be a part of that. Yeah, that I think the sport moment that I remember the most is from my childhood, and it was a baseball moment, and it's from the. Uh, 1988 World Series, and that probably is a tip-off to people who remember that World Series. (laughs) Yeah. I wasn't old enough to experience that moment when it happened, but I've watched that whole series. I was only nine years old, but I was old enough to put it together that, wait, I, I mean, I knew the rules of baseball because I collected baseball cards and I was a big baseball fan. So, like, I understood how the game worked and, like, what the stakes were. So I was old enough to f- put it together that, wait, so it's the bottom of the ninth and, wait, so this guy's injured. So he has to hit a home run because if he doesn't hit the home run, he's probably going to get out because he can't run very well. And... So it's basically do or die. This guy has to hit a home run or they lose the game. And, you know, I I was young enough, or I was old enough to know, like, it's not like you just go out and decide I'm going to hit a home run now. Like, that's a an exciting big thing. And it's you a, a huge gamble that they're taking. And even I understood, like, oh, this seems like a really big gamble that is probably not going to work. And so when Kirk Gibson did hit that home run and was able to limp his way around the bases, that was a very, very exciting moment. Even me at nine years old understood that I had just seen something that was a a very unique moment in sports that was very unlikely, but very, very cool. Yeah, I was I was five when that happened. I'm sure my dad was watching it because Lakers and Dodgers, my dad's been a fan of them since he was a teenager. A friend of his got him into those two sports and those teams. And so they're just they're in my blood. So I'm absolutely sure that he was watching the game, but I couldn't tell you for sure if I was there and watching it, if he happened to have like gone to a family member's house, because there's not a lot of family members in my family that care enough about sports. Um, so it's not like, you know, some families where they have, like, big get-togethers or something like that. But uh, I've gone back and watched that, and uh, they actually, I wish I still had it. Um, I'm kicking myself now. It's like, you, you take for granted thinking that DVDs are always going to be in print, and then they disappear, and you're like, oh, I should never have sold that when I thought I didn't care about it anymore. <laughs> oh, um, they had yep. a DVD set that had that whole series. 
Um, and so I've, I've watched the whole thing. And in that game, like, not only was that an amazing moment, but that was against Dennis Eckersley, who was... Um, yeah, top of his game uh, pitcher at yeah, the time. Yeah, one of, one of the... Uh, one of the greatest pitchers. Yeah, I mean, he definitely was one of the greatest at that time, and I think that he probably is up there just kind of in, in general in the history of pitching. So to do that, not only to do that, but to do it against somebody who's very good at what they do. And then um, that moment was so amazing that it's easy to uh, to not remember that on the road to them winning that series, the next game, Oral Hershiser pitched a shutout. Uh, mm. So not only was it sparked by, you know, they got the momentum because of this offensive thing that was like a miracle. But then the next game, their ace pitcher was an ace and completely shut down uh, the team that should have decimated the Dodgers. You, know, the, um, you go back and, and watch that in the uh, the A's. They had Mark McGuire and uh, Jose Canseco. And Jose Canseco, like the two and guys Rick, who like. Ricky Henderson also yeah. as, their, as their leadoff batter, I think, at that time, right? They had like yeah. uh, an, an insane starting lineup in like one positions one, two, three, and four. I think it's fun. like Jose Canseco and McGuire, though. Like Jose Canseco is the guy that's like, look at me on steroids. And McGuire's like, I like that. I'm going to do that too. <laughs> yeah. it, it cracks like, me hey. up. And that's like the birth of the steroid era right there. Uh-huh. So we we took down like the the juiced up steroid team basically. It's it's funny because I think at the time I was probably more of a Dodgers fan, so I was very excited. Now I'm an A's fan. The A's are are my team, and so it, it's a it's a weird series because it, it it matches up my childhood favorite team, which was the Dodgers, with my current team that I root for, which is the A's. So it's it's a yeah, fun one for me I, to look I back believe at. the A's in the, the next round of this uh playoffs is playing against the Astros, so they better do their job. And, well, uh, I mean look, it's the playoffs. The A's are gonna lose. <laughs> I I've gotten used to this. <laughs> they're playing against an under five hundred team that is also the greatest evil the game has seen since the Black Sox. I know. I've uh I've been an A's fan. I what what I say is um there are no fair weather fans of Oakland sports teams because there's never any fair weather, <laughs> um, but I'm still a fan of them. So yeah. Yeah. That's the way to be. Cause then when they actually do do it, it's going to like, that's the way you get the ecstasy. You don't get it by like moving around to whoever's actually good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All uh, right. Well, well, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's move away from sports and talk about some other top tens. Huh? All right. You, you, you bring one up your turn. All right. Well, I'm I'm gonna um, talk about a a top ten toy, and it's not gonna be the obvious one <laughs> for me, or the second obvious one even for me. But I think that Transformers belongs on the top ten as a top ten toy. I think that e- even though I'm not a, r- a real big Transformer fan, like I don't buy any Transformers now. I don't collect them. I don't read the comics. I don't really. I don't really care about Transformers. I just kind of don't have any room for that in my life. I'm I'm a fan of enough other things that I like much better to really care about Transformers. But I think the idea of what a Transformer is, which is a, a toy that can change form, that to me as a child was just an amazing idea that you basically get two toys in one I kind of feel like this was 
the the first toy that really did that. Maybe Voltron before that, where you have a bunch of lions, and then you can also have a robot if you happen yeah. to have all of the. Pieces I was going to say the, the same thing. Yeah, I never had any of those toys as a kid either. Like they were always. I mean, like the Voltron ones were. I think probably out of the you know the price range, realistically. Yeah, I um, never had a Voltron transform. I, like I'm guessing with with both those things, they must have been on the pricier side. So, and I was never you know obsessed with the the prop. Excuse me, with the properties. So, you know, I'm sure if I was a big Voltron or Transformers fan, my parents would have got me some of the toys. But I was an Ninja Turtles fan, so I, I didn't have any of the cool transforming toys. I love that you started this off with like, "Hey, I really don't care about this or like it at all, but I think it's great." <laughs> well, I, I think it's because I, I think you know I could say, "Oh, GI Joe is the greatest toy," but it's like, come on, right? It's like obviously I'm a huge GI Joe fan, so it's hard to take that seriously as a top 10 entry. I think it's fair to put it on like a top 10 favorite list, but uh, maybe it belongs on a top 10. Maybe it doesn't. It's, it's hard for me to say because I'm so personally invested. Well, and I think, I think top 10s are a personal thing too, but I think it's cool. Like what you're saying, I was teasing obviously, but sure, uh, uh-huh. you know, what you're saying is recognizing how great something is without having to love it. Like, like me with Star Wars, I don't really care about Star Wars, but I recognize how good it is. I recognize what it's done and you know what it's contributed. So you know, like top ten, uh, you know, sci-fi films or franchises or whatever fantasy, like whatever you want to call it, like Star Wars would be on there for me. Yeah, even though I'd probably sleep through them. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think. Um... Transformers really pointed out to me because I, I did have a few Transformers. I had an Optimus Prime. I had the little Jeep guy. I think I had a Bumblebee, uh, maybe a couple of the Dinobots. Um, and I think I had all the Constructicons, which were the small construction vehicles that turned into similar to Voltron. You could put them all together to make, uh, well, what seemed like a giant robot to me, but was probably like seven inches tall or something, <laughs> like not yeah. that great now that now that I were to look at it. But this idea of you get two toys in one and that either way, its other form is like hidden inside of it. That was just such a cool idea to me. Yeah. And that the toys could have a function that they could perform outside of just what your imagination could do. But as a, you know, this thing actually has moving parts and stuff. It felt like a much more sophisticated toy to me than just like the GI Joes and the Transformers I was playing with. And it always made me wish that my GI Joe vehicles could transform into something else or my star wars vehicles could transform into some other form like a walker could turn into like something that flew or you know whatever something like that and so that transforming element i always thought was really really cool and even though it maybe didn't start with transformers i think that that really is what popularized it and is probably the best realization of that idea so i think Transformers is definitely a top 10 toy. Yeah, I I completely agree. And like for me, you know, when I was a kid, even now, like I always love things that were um, were clever and complex and interesting and detailed. And like Transformers just like, you know, checks off all those boxes. So, 
you know, like we've we've talked talked about toy collecting some, and like I don't have a lot of stuff, and I try not to like keep on dipping into something. Like I have a bunch of Ninja Turtle stuff, but I try to get different types of Ninja Turtle figures because I don't want a whole bunch of like, okay, here's all four turtles in this form, and here's all four in this. You know, it's like I'd rather have different characters, different designs, and stuff. Um, but then others are like GI Joe. I grabbed a couple GI Joe figures that I thought were really cool with this these ones as they have, and I stopped there. There's so much cool Transformer stuff available right now that it's like it's always kind of tempting for me to look at them. But I think it would have to be like finding a really cool, detailed, like Optimus Prime or something, like something really recognizable rather than just some random Transformer. But I could see me getting one just to have. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna parlay your idea here into uh, something that I think will expand uh, the conversation a little differently and say uh, top ten action figures. So like obviously. Mm. We're going to say action figures would be a top 10 toy. Like, I think if you you have to generalize the category to not just make it about being the property that you like. But if you talk about top 10 action figures, so for me, like, I hit Ninja Turtles, of course. But one of my favorite toys as a kid was uh, Hasbro WWF figures. They were the ones that were, like, maybe four inches tall. Were they, like, rubber and look like they're riding a motorcycle, kind of? No, no. These are the ones they were hard plastic. And each figure had some kind of mechanism that it would do that would be, like, you know, a, a wrestling move of some sort. Like, uh, um, the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, they had this, uh, this like, little bump on their back. And uh, you would push down, like, basically, you would push down their torso. And when you let go, it would make them, like, jump like they were doing a, a leaping diving attack, you know? Okay. Um, Gotcha. I saw Jim Duggan. You would uh, his arms were basically linked together, so you would lift up either one of his arms. The other one would also lift. And you would let go, and he would be doing like a smash on the guy. Um, some of them, like uh, my first three, I'll start there. So, I had, uh, one day, my dad, uh, when when he and my mom were separated, like us kids would rotate weekends to go stay with him, and he took took me to to Walmart, and in Walmart. I discovered I had like probably just discovered wrestling. I uh, didn't know what it was for that long yet, and was like falling in love with it. And they had these figures, and they were two dollars a piece. Which first of all, like nowadays, you're like holy crap! Like an action figure for two bucks seems insane, right? Yeah. Um, I'm assuming they were probably on some sort of a sale because that still seems cheap even for like the the time. Um, and my dad had said you can spend five bucks, so I'm I'm a, like okay, five bucks means two with a dollar left over, but it's like if I get three. Like, I was able to talk my dad into letting me spend that extra dollar because it's like, if I get two figures, there's only one match I could have. If I get three figures, then then there's, like, not only three different, like, one-on-one matches, but I could do, like, a, you know, a a handicap match or, like, I could do different stuff, you know? So, like, it really opens up the possibilities more. So, I got Hulk Hogan, of course. Um, and his uh, his move that he could do is uh, his arms were linked. Um, so, like, if you lift up one, you lifted up both. Um, but his hands were in, like, the gorilla press, like, you know, palms spread, fingers out. So you lifted his hands up, and you could put, like, one of the other guys on top. And then when you let go, he would throw them, like, uh, you know, a gorilla pl- press slam. Oh, um, okay. Which mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, used more back in that those days. Uh, I got Jake the Snake Roberts. Cool. With, with his snake that would uh, wrap around his neck. Uh, and his move was uh, you would uh, – one of his arms was straight. And if you pulled it back, it would uh, there was it was spring loaded, so you'd pull it back and then let it go, and he'd throw a punch. And then the other one I got was Andre the Giant, and his move was a little bit on the lame side, but um, you would hold down, you'd hold his legs, and you'd pull his uh, upper body back, and then when you let go, he would like his body would you know jolt forward, so he'd be doing like a headbutt or whatever. 
Um, but yeah, so those were my first three figures. Um, I ended up having uh, over thirty of them. They weren't always easy to find. Like wow. they, when it, when I was yeah. a kid and loved wrestling, wrestling was not culturally popular like it is now. Where like you can find wrestling stuff literally all the time anywhere. Like you couldn't find stuff. So like when they had it, I was always like, oh man, I wanted to get as many as I could. Um, I, yeah, it was just like, it was a great toy for me. Um, my first ring was, uh, taking the top off of a broken VCR and using that. Oh, cool. And then my <laughs> second one was, I actually built one out of wood. And then, uh, eventually for Christmas, my parents got me like the actual ring, but they got it on clearance because, uh, somebody had like stolen all the stickers and stuff out of the package. So like, it was like just the ring with none of the decals, um, and it had uh, it had the flag that went on the like the one of the ring posts, but it didn't have the belt it was supposed to come with. But mm-hmm. I still I just I loved it to death, man. I wore that sucker out, and one that of was my... one of the the toys that I I saved. You know, when I got told to to play with toys, like I saved those. I had a bunch of other wrestling figures I got later in my life that I did not save, but I saved those. Then when we moved to man, I was like, I don't need to keep all these. I kept one figure. I kept my Bret Hart figure because he was my favorite. Um, but I sold the rest. I put them on eBay. I was like. Ah oh, man, these aren't going to sell for that much because I had like shipping was the um, the priority mail large flat rate box so it was like twenty twenty bucks for shipping. I think I started the auction at like thirty bucks, and it's um, it was about thirty figures, and it ended up climbing up to uh, like around a hundred bucks. So I was, cool. I was pretty surprised by that. Like I oh, probably nice. actually sold them for about what I spent on them over the years. Cool. We I remember there were wrestling figures that. I, f- I feel like they were stuck in a single pose, and I kind of remember it being kind of like it looked like they were riding a motorcycle. Like, yeah, there were ones like that. Um, yeah. I had WCW ones that were – they were much taller. They were probably like, I don't know, probably at least six inches. Like they were taller than the, the WWF ones um, that were like that. They were just hard rubber. Um, there were other – I think they were LJN was the brand. Um WWF figures before the Hasbro ones were the same thing, like big hard rubber figures. Um, I know more about those because my um, my wife's cousin, who's a like my one good friend in Maine, basically since my other friend uh, redeployed, um, he's a huge huge wrestling fan. So like he had a bunch of the LJN figures, um, and then like you know throughout the years after that, they kept on obviously coming out with different designs. And um, yeah, like those Hasbro figures were just like the, that was the special one for me. Okay. My friends and I, we one of my friends had a lot of those wrestling figures. Andy had the wrestling ring. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if I had any or not. But when I would go to this friend's house, and I can't even remember which friend it was now. It was one of two, but I can't remember which. What we would do is we would get the wrestling ring. We would put all the wrestlers in it, and then we would shake it together. Until there was just one wrestler left, and we call it the Royal Rumble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was a lot yeah. of fun. I used to love doing that. I, I'd have Royal Rumbles. Um, I'd have, like, all kinds of crazy matches. Like, I loved that the ring had the um, the flag post because I would do, um, you know, like, watching as a kid, like, they'd have, uh, uh, you know, Big Boss Man would have, like, a, a match where his nightstick was strapped up on a pole. So, like, throughout the match, you're trying to beat down your opponent enough so you can get the weapon... So then you could use the weapon to beat them more, and then you could win. Um, so, like, I would do matches like that. Like, I'd use Thread, and I would tie his nightstick up there on the flag post, And um, and then, you know, like, I, just all those kind of matches. Like, I remember, like, really, 
orchestrating these things and coming up with kind of it's funny because like there were moves I would come up with that you did not see happen back in those days and then years later you saw them happen and I bet you anything it was like the the wrestlers who years later are wrestling they were fans and they were playing with these toys and stuff so it's like you're always kind of dreaming about what else can happen beyond what you're seeing and like it's just so funny like seeing that kind of thing happen where I dreamed of these possibilities and then like eventually like people actually figure out how to make crazy things that you thought were impossible happen Hmm. Okay. Cool. Uh, so, all right. Am, am I up now for a top ten? Yep. So here's here's my idea. Um, I, I had no idea how this would go and uh, how the conversation would go. So you hit us with another top ten, and then uh, I have an idea for how to wrap this up. Where I'm going to challenge just both of us with the same question. Um, so you do your top ten, then we'll do that to wrap up this uh, this episode because I think probably by then we'll be running a little over an hour. And uh, it'll be good first experiment. We'll see what we do next time. So what's your next top ten? Cool. Well, I'm going to go with uh, move to television now for a top ten. And this is a show that I didn't think was going to be any good. And I went many, many years in life thinking, this show sounds terrible. I do not want to watch this show at all. This show sounds stupid. It sounds like I am not the audience, and I would never like this show one bit. And then you but finally then, watched Monday Night Football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I kept hearing from people, people whose opinions seem to be in line with mine, with what they like, that, no, this show is really good. It's actually a very, very good show, and it's it's worth watching, and it's not quite what it seems. And that show is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Have you ever watched Buffy? I have not. Uh, well, I've probably seen. I've seen it some. Uh, my okay. little sister was obsessed with that show when it was out, which is like the nail in the coffin of wanting to to you know potentially try something. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Because for me, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was the show that the weird girls in college would always reserve the TV in the common room for whatever night it was on of, oh, we have to watch Buffy. We have to watch Buffy. And I was like, okay, this show is dumb. <laughs> that was what I always thought. Yeah, it says a lot about his popularity, too, because, like, my, my little sister was probably, like, just before junior high age, maybe, around there, and uh-huh. and she loved it. So, like, it shows, like, it, it, it uh, hit a wide age range as well, like, not just only young kids or only teenagers or only young adults, you know, it was like kind of spread across all of those. I think it's a show that is really smartly done in that it has both surface levels to it. And then it has deeper undercurrents to it as well. And neither of the two conflict with each other, but it allows you to, as a viewer decide how, invested you want to get in it and it's possible to just enjoy it on a surface level of here's a neat story that's going on but then sometimes there's some allegory stuff especially in the the early seasons there was a lot of allegory to uh to what was going on like i remember here here's a uh an episode that's a little on the nose with its allegory but there was one where there was a person at Buffy's school who was invisible, like literally invisible and causing a lot of mayhem due to it. But it was obviously a metaphor for 
a student that feels like they're invisible because they're not part of like the cool kids or nobody pays attention to them and it drives them to be frustrated and angry. So you can just watch it uh, on the surface level of, oh, Buffy and the gang have to solve this mystery of what's going on. Or you can look at it as a little more of an allegory about what it can be like to be in high school and not really noticed by other people. And, you, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff like that that it just kind of digs underneath the skin a little bit more. Plus, it just really... It does a really good job with building and growing character in a really good way. And it it really takes that on as part of what the show is, is about, is allowing characters to grow and change and learn and develop. And it, it's, uh, it really surprised me that once I started watching it that I really, really liked it. So once I did actually try it out, I realized, man, it, it's it's actually good. And then I watched the whole thing, and it was really good. Nice, yeah. I, yeah. I know I've seen um, something of Buffy, like you know, since I've been an adult. Because obviously, like you know, I got exposed to it when I was uh, a teenager when my sister was watching it. But it uh, it struck me as super cheesy. But I think it's really easy to, to take a show like that, that um, they were doing kind of what they could with special effects. Uh, plus, you know, TV special effects usually, like, are, you know, a swing and a miss compared to movie special effects. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really easy to, to, like, take an isolated part of it and be like, this is cheesy and silly and just make fun of it. Um, but then, you know, like, obviously you dug into it deeper and, and gave it a watch and got into the story and... You know, there's there's always a lot more to be offered uh, when you get past like those kind of hangups, even with stuff that uh, maybe hasn't aged well in those ways. Um, it's definitely campy. It's it. I think it's not trying to not be very campy of a show. Yeah, and that it's it is kind of like. <laughs> Ugh, okay, here's a a dancing demon has come to town. We must stop. It's like sometimes very very campy, but yeah. I think a lot of what helps it is that the the characters are earnest when they need to be earnest, and they're kind of jokey when they need to be jokey. It, it the show seems to understand what it is and play within those rules that okay we know that this is kind of a, a campy sometimes cheesy show but you know let's take that as seriously as we can and it uh i think it really works for the show do you remember the movie that uh that came out before that the show was not really nothing like no i've never seen it actually yeah so there I was a was buffy the vampire like the slayer movie yeah. and so th- that's i had seen that actually in the theater um when it was uh you know when it was a new movie um, the only actor I remember was in it was, uh, uh, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubin was, uh, <laughs> was playing one of the vampires and he was like the comic relief in the movie. Um, and I just remember the show coming out and being like, this isn't funny at all. <laughs> you know, the movie was a comedy and the show was definitely not a comedy, uh-huh. uh, even if it had its, its, you know, it's funny moments, but, um, yeah, so I don't think that's a show I'm ever going to give a shot. It's not, you know, that's like definitely not the realm of my TV watching cup of tea is, um, you know, that kind of fantasy sci-fi type of stuff. Like another one that is highly regarded that I, I've tried a little bit. I just know I'm never really going to be able to 
give a proper shot is the X-Files. Like, just not my thing. Mm. Uh, whether it's good or not, doesn't matter. Just, you know, watching watching it just isn't my cup of tea. Um, you know what I did with X-Files is I looked up the episodes that only pertain to the, like, ongoing story. Uh-huh. Of, like, the alien invasion or alien... I don't even really understand what it was the whatever alien story they were just making up as they were going type of thing because like it seemed like three out of four episodes were just investigate a monster of the week that had nothing Mm -hmm. to do with anything really and then one out of four had to do with this idea of we're investigating this the fact that aliens exist and we're trying to get to the bottom of that so I just skipped 75% of the series and would watch the like three or four episodes a season that dealt with that primary ongoing story thread. And I enjoyed watching it that way because it kind of stuck with the meat of it and it wasn't as time intensive. Interesting. I probably yeah. still won't try that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> that that is a good way. You know, sometimes it's like we we have something that's big like that out in front of us, and we're like, "Well, I just have to start from the beginning." But sometimes you start from the beginning, and you can't get on to what makes it actually engaging. Um, yeah, I know somebody who can never get into Sandman, but he never got past much past the first trade. And I just said, like, if you really want to, you got to get a few trades in because the first trade, like, I think it's great, but if you don't. That's fine, but like when it hits its stride is as it keeps going, you know, like you yeah. gotta get deeper into it and that can be hard to do. So like I've told people that with some things, like don't start at the beginning because you will not get into it. Like actually start a little bit further into it, you know. Um a few T V shows that um kind of in this vein that I'll I'll throw out as shows that especially with, with like our age or younger, like you and I remember these shows from when they were actually on to some extent at least. Uh, but it's easy for us to have been young enough to have not engaged with them. Um, and then people younger than us certainly would be running into that more. Um, uh, but shows that I've uh, I've watched fully several times and really enjoyed uh, that I think deserve to be in the conversation of, like, top ten TV show lists. Um, mm. One is MASH. Uh, my wife got me to watch MASH because uh, I think she grew up with her, her dad watching it. Um, you know, they would watch, uh, um, like, the show wasn't, she, she saw it before it ended. Like, I, I don't recall watching it, like, as a, this is the primetime show at all. Um, I don't know what year it ended, but I might have actually not have been alive for it. I don't know. Um, but I've watched MASH at least two or three times over, uh, like, the whole entire series. And it's a pretty good long series. But that show is fantastic. Um, it has its, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, light, sillier episodes. It has deep episodes with more meaning it has a building story like really you know has building emotion very good show uh cheers is another one that i think like really really holds up as a sitcom to just being a a great show um i think having lots of engaging characters is important for a show to have a longevity um and to actually be good the whole time um and another one uh that i probably wouldn't have engaged with as much if it wasn't for just you know we bought all the like a set of all the dvds or whatever is uh golden girls like golden girls is a really good comedy <laughs> um my wife loves golden girls yeah <laughs> it's, it's always on in our house because she loves to watch it it's a great show and it's one of those shows that you watch it and it definitely like it can shake you out of your norm of what you watch and there's a lot of good like there's a lot of quality in that show so 
just some that, that I always think about that, like, you know, people get stuck on certain shows. Like, he, if you can't get past, like, talking about The Office or The Wire, which are both great shows, there's some other shows out there that, um, you know, it gets easy to get just stuck in the cycle of I just watch these same things or new things. And I don't watch new things at all. So, like, for me, it's got to find something I can stream if I'm going to watch it anyways. I think those older shows, it, it's interesting. It's It's kind of like reading older comics. In that the way that they told stories was different. Like, you, you, when I watch Golden Girls, I can tell that it's a performance going yeah. on. That you the, see the the like the vaudeville and the actors. Yeah, exactly. Like it, I can tell that they are performing this story. It's not just that they're trying to kind of let the um, the art of the the acting and the performance be hidden so that you just pay attention to the story. It, it is very much, I can see them acting. And so that's a very different type of TV storytelling than what we're used to now, because I think now the intention is to uh, eliminate that as much as possible. So that the, the fact that they're acting becomes hidden and you get lost in that fact and just get wrapped up in the story. Yeah, but with and Golden for Girls, a great amount of stuff, too, yeah. the quality of the acting doesn't matter. Like, there's a lot of awful shows on TV that just are poor quality. I mean, the the prevalence of uh, of uh, reality shows showcases how little oh, there actually yeah. needs to be quality in what's going to make money. You know, so it's, it, there, it's rare that there's a show that's actually high quality, you know? Um, uh-huh. I mean, there's a reason that Betty White is, you know, beloved. And has been, you know, for for so so many years. Uh, you know, she's the the one out of those four, especially that like you know, there's just qualities about her that kind of reached a wider audience. But everybody loves Betty White. And, yeah, of course. You know, you you'd go back in like the the history of how those actresses developed their skill is very different than anything you get nowadays because the, the things that they did early in their careers don't exist anymore. And the more you 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 sharpen yourself through through you know experiences and through adversity and through like all these different things and you don't see people get sharp in the same way nowadays so there's just like there's a different quality beneath their skill i guess yeah all right well so, uh, what's another top 10 for you okay so so last one before i give the one that i actually want to challenge us to fill out um because this just popped in my head, and it's a, I think it'll be a fun one to talk about briefly. Um, and this is from a, an experience I had recently. Uh, I was thinking uh, top ten movies that were popular when you were younger, that you watched, that you liked, that are not something you should ever rewatch. And I'll give you my example of a movie I tried to rewatch and went like, nope, this just needs to live in my memory, and that's it. Men in Black. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Super popular movie when it came out, right? I watched it. I liked it. I watched Men in Black 2. So I got some movies from somebody that was just, like, looking to get rid of some DVDs. And, you know, on Twitter was like, if anybody wants these, like, pay for shipping and I'll just send them to you kind of a thing. Um, and Men in Black is one of them. And I put it in. I watch a few minutes. And I just like, oh, my gosh, this is not – it's not good. <laughs> the the special effects are bad. Um, just the, the – oh, it just was – Definitely does not live up to my memory of how I enjoyed it when it was, you know, a new movie and I was like a teenager. But that movie was super popular when it was a, a new movie. Um, 
So yeah, Men in Black is one that stands out to me. Um, pretty much all the movies that I got from this person, I was like, yeah, I'm just I'm not gonna try to watch any of these. Uh, the Matrix is Matrix is one that I've never gone back and rewatched, but I really, really feel like is probably in that category where I cannot imagine it lives up to my memory of how good it is. Hmm. See that that's one for me where the it was such a distinctly notable viewing experience when I saw it. In fact, like, like my, where I was when I saw Matrix for the first time, that's the most vivid movie memory I have in terms of how and when I saw it for the first time. Because I was uh, in, in college, when I was in Santa Cruz in college, I lived in a house that was like a duplex. And um, there were six of us that lived in the back half and there were uh, four people that lived in the front half. And we all knew each other. It was kind of more like one big house than it was like two separate houses. And some of us were over in the front house hanging out. And uh, the girls that lived there, had somebody had rented the Matrix. And I had missed it when it was in the theater. And But all my friends were like, oh, The Matrix is so good, so good. But I, I just had never seen it. And so they said, well, I'll put it on if you want. And so I put it on. And I started watching. And about 20 minutes into it, they all had to leave. And uh, they, they could tell I was so enthralled. They're like, well, uh, I guess you can just stay in our house and watch this while we're gone if you want. Uh, and I was like, yep, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. And I just sat there in my essentially neighbor's house and watched this movie while they were gone because I just couldn't take my eyes off of it. It was it blew my mind so much. And I think that I always live with that experience of it. Uh, and so watching it with fresh eyes, it's it's almost like I can't, almost like Star Wars, because I have such uh, a, a strong emotional reaction from the first time I saw it that I still kind of relive that rather than just looking at it objectively again. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally a thing, too. Like, uh, we, we tie our experiences to something, and then it can bring up those emotions that, I mean everybody has lots of bad movies they watched when they were younger but are tied to good emotions that they love those movies and can rewatch them because it's more than just the quality of the movie that that brings it um for me i watched it i liked it but that's it like there was nothing really you know amazing about my fr- and i haven't tried rewatching it like that's one where i've thought about it but i just keep on not um and my experience with trying to to watch men in black was it's just my, my time is limited. It's hard to watch movies. And I'm like, okay, would I rather spend two hours watching this? And I'm kind of like, I don't really think this is worth the time. Uh, or would I rather watch, you know, like I have, I still have like another 10 Zatoichi movies to watch. I got a bunch of other samurai movies that I, I own that I haven't watched yet to watch. Um, there's other movies that have come out since then, you know, that I have to watch. But I think there's a lot of those movies that, uh, that, were super popular. Everybody watched them and loved them. And then you try to watch them down the road and you're just like, oh, this is not good. Now, the antithesis to that, one of my favorite movies that kind of fits that blockbuster criteria, but I think really stands up very, very well, is Jurassic Park. I still love oh, that yeah. movie. And that's one where, like, I, I remember watching that as a kid. And um, I was, I think I was only, like, 10 when that movie, yeah, it was 93. I, I came out, that movie, movie came out when I was 10. So I was, like, I was 
kind of on the young side for. I mean, it's PG-13, so if you just use that as the criteria, I was definitely young for it. Um, but I remember seeing it. I remember reading the Michael uh, Crichton book uh, that it was based on, which is you know definitely not written for, for kids. Um, and then seeing the movie again, and because of having seen it and read the book, having like vivid pictures of scenes in the book that weren't actually in the movie and being like, wait, I, why isn't this scene in there, you know? Uh, I still love watching Jurassic Park. Uh, and yeah, so that, that to me is like the antithesis to that. It's a movie that stands up very well to that test of time, even though like think, otherwise it would check those boxes. I think that's just such a well-made movie in general. Yeah, the way they use the special effects, but use practical effects and not just computer graphics, which if it was just computer graphics, like that would be super dated because those graphics wouldn't hold up over the time, you know? And I um, think what it does really well, what really sells it, and and this is something that I noticed based on uh, conversations about Star Wars, when they were making Empire Strikes Back, they realized that a lot of the, there was this challenge in, in this Yoda character and that he was a puppet, right? right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, all of a sudden you have a puppet. The, the scare is that all of a sudden this movie would look like the Muppets or feel like it was the Muppets because there's a puppet now all of a sudden amidst all these actors. And the, the secret they realized wasn't in how lifelike they can get Yoda to look but it was in how well Luke reacts to Yoda Mm -hmm. and that how, how Luke acts to treat Yoda as real and respond to this puppet as a real living thing. That's what makes us make Yoda seem like he's a real living thing. And I think similarly, the actors in Jurassic Park did such a good job of responding to these animatronics and CG effects in such a way that it makes it feel real to us. Yeah. Like the, the wonder when they first see them that the actors have on their face, they're not like phoning that in. They are really selling the, just how much they are blown away and can't believe what they're seeing. And then the terror that the kids show like in the velociraptor kitchen scene Mm -hmm. you know they sell that so so hard and that's why i think what one of the things that makes that movie work so well is just how well the the actors do in making you believe that these dinosaurs are real yeah exactly yeah i mean yeah i love that movie yeah, All I mean, right. it, it works on story and music and acting and everything. It's just, I think, uh, like an A-plus movie. Yeah, yeah it, it really is just so well put together. And, you know, what kid didn't grow up loving dinosaurs? And then for that there to be that movie that, you know, kind of takes it to the next level. Like, I don't think there's any dinosaur movie, uh, period, that measures up to the quality of Jurassic Park. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, and I, honestly, I, I don't think that there ever will be because you have to treat the subject as serious. And I think that anything that Hollywood is going to make with dinosaurs is going to be like either this monster is thing, yeah you know. easy monster fun or this is for kids, you know. So yeah. for that to be treated like with that kind of respect, it's you know, I mean, it's because the Michael Crichton book it was a very it was a very good story too, you know. Um, all right, so here here is my uh, my 
top 10 challenge for us. It's challenge time. So right. um, I, we, I have some different ideas of how we could play this out as, as we you know try this again in the future. And, of course, like, you know, listeners, if they have ideas, that, of course, would be a great way to challenge us. Um, it's always it, – like, it's really fun to have a challenge that's given to you. It's not so fun to, like, make your own challenge. Um, so, I, I, you know, in the future, like, you and I can challenge each other. Um, yeah. But then, you know, of course, uh, we know each other fairly well. So, like, outside challenges are always, you know, something unique and different that we probably wouldn't think about. This one I just thought um, of something that would be easier to do but would also kind of expand the conversation a little bit beyond just what we're reading um, in comics uh, or even just our our favorite specific things. Uh, but that will play into it some. Uh, so, I want us, and we each have to come up with 10, and we could definitely, like, say same thing for some of the, you know, some of the things. So it's not like we have to come up with 10 unique things. Uh, But top 10 comic, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Not not quite comic properties, because I don't want it to be, like, all-encompassing. Not quite comic stories where we're talking about specific stories. But, like, top 10, like, comic uh, properties for us that, like, for example, so... Um, if I say Hellboy, which is, will be one of the things I say, that will encompass all of Hellboy because there's like they're distinctly connected. It's all connected. Um, so I can expand upon that and include BPRD and you know how it goes on from there and stuff like that because it's all the same story. Uh, whereas if I say Hawkeye, I'm not talking about literally all the Hawkeye comics. I would be more specific to the Matt Fraction, David Aha. Hawkeye run because I think that that is a fantastic story um, but I am not associating it with every other Hawkeye story or him in Avengers and yada yada you know like I'm only talking about that story because it's not connected with everything else does that make sense yeah so we can kind of it, it sounds like I could say Claremont's X-Men rather than just X-Men yeah exactly so if you said X-Men that would be too you know or even uncanny X-Men that'd be way too all-encompassing Claremont's X-Men could be a massive thing or if you don't I mean with Claremont we know it all lives up to it but like if you didn't think it all led up you know lived up to it you could say like you know Claremont and Burns X-Men run because Burn is what made it special you know something like that like you can you can narrow something down with the criteria that makes it special and be like this other part isn't um but like Claremont would clearly you know we could just say his whole run um so I will start throwing one out there. And uh, last detail with this. So we're going to say 10 things. This doesn't mean that this is our concise top 10 list. We can easily be forgetting things. That's the challenge of it. So we can forget things that would definitely be on our top 10. We're not trying to be perfect. Um, It's to, like, create a conversation and push ourselves past just, like, saying one or two things. Uh, So the first thing I'm going to say is Harrow County uh, by uh, written by Colin Bunn. Uh, the art uh, is by Tyler Croft, unless I'm screwing up and misremembering it because I didn't look anything up ahead of time. That's why this is a challenge, um, even though I'm the one that came up with it. Uh, but yeah, Harrow County, like I, I've mentioned that to you. I've read all of that. Um, I just got back into reading The Sixth Gun, also written by Colin Bunn, uh, although the art is by a different artist. Um and I think once I read that run, just what I've heard of it uh, and the fact that I've tried it before and now I have, like, literally the whole run in my office so I can read it all, I think that this will probably also be an entry on a, a top ten potential list for me. But Harrow County is a, is a fantastic horror story. Like, it's it's not just about the horror. Like, the story is really good. Um, it's one that I would recommend to anybody to just 
dive in both feet. Like, unless you're really turned off by, by horror. And for me, it's a strong criteria that, like, when I say horror, I'm not talking gore. Like, I do not like stories or movies or anything that is just gore, and that's what makes it horror. Like, it's got to be a horror story, and, like, this is a fantastic horror story. Um, hmm. Great, okay. great uh, series that uh, Colin Bunn and Tyler Croft did. The art's fantastic in it as well. Um, so that is my first entry is uh, Harrow County. Okay, well, I'm going to say the obvious one that we just say and say uh, Claremont's X-Men run. Yep, for me, that would make my list too. Yeah, for me, that is just, it, it's what defines X-Men. It's what everything I love about X-Men It is just, I, I love it. It's probably my, my favorite thing in comics that exists is that Claremont X-Men run. I think it's just so definitive and encompassing and great. So that's obviously the first thing that comes to mind for me. Yeah, and for for me, just to, to follow up on that, because that'll be on my list too, is um, the the quality of the story. Like, that's easy to talk about. But it, it got me to read a different type of writing, uh, which that goes to the story but you know like that era of writing isn't like how comics are written nowadays where a lot of comics are written with very few words and very much driven by the art although they're certainly that's not all of them um but reading that type of comic writing was uh it took it took me some work to be able to do it but it paid like it was worth it it paid off but then exposing me to so much different great art that it's really easy to be dismissive of that stuff when your first exposure was comics in the last, like, you know, 10 or 15 years. You know, the older art, there were more limitations. And you have to learn to appreciate the limitations to really see how great the stuff is, unless you were just taught to appreciate it, which I, I didn't have anybody to teach me and expose me to stuff. Like, you know, I, I had to learn all this stuff on my own, um, which, I mean, honestly, is probably most of us. But, you know, as we go on in years, people expose us to different things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like I mentioned John Byrne, uh, you know, his art, um, Dave Cockrum, you know, a lot of the other artists, even like, uh, you know, J.R. Jr., later on where I've heard a lot of criticism from people about his later artwork, but like his work on the X-Men was, was great. Um, and yeah, just, it was before he kind of developed his distinct style. Yeah. Is, which apparently was when he was good, working with Claremont <laughs> style. Um, but like uh, learning to enjoy and appreciate the subtleties of the art and, you know, like it's, there's obviously like a lot of, uh, of sex appeal in superhero comics, right? Like that's part of it. Like these are all characters that, you know, for the most part, you know, especially mainstream stuff, they're like, you, you know, peak physical forms. Like any, any comic, you know, superhero comic you could say probably is showcasing that. Like, you know, the, the guys look like the ideal of how guys should look. The girls look, you know, like the ideal of that, um, you know, yeah. just the stereotypical mm-hmm. ideal. But going back and like seeing the subtleties of the art, like, man, it's, it's way more appealing to like appreciate the subtleties of uh, attractiveness than it is to just have like, you know, giant highly rendered boobs in your face, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like that, they're just like, there's so much to appreciate. Uh, you know, across the board with it. Um, so yeah, so I, I second that. Um, so that's two on my list, but I'll, I'll say the next one to give you a, a chance to think of your next one. And I already mentioned this, but Hellboy, just that whole world, which is a very big world and uh, also encompasses BPRD. So basically the, the Mignolaverse, like I think it's all very much concise enough of a linked together story to call it one thing. 
Um, you and I have talked about the the challenge you've had in getting into Hellboy, which I can definitely understand that because I think that the best story comes out of BPRD because it's less focused on one character and more focused on a lot of characters that are well developed, and that's what tends to entice you in to you know long stories is having all those characters to to appreciate. Um, but help like the the bigger scope of Hellboy is a huge thing. Um, and kind of like, uh, like I said, when we were talking about TV shows, if you only go like, I only can get into this if I start from the very beginning and then you try that very beginning and you're like, I don't really like this kind of like you have shared with me, like you've had trouble getting into Hellboy, but yeah. you've read BPRD stuff and got into it. So yeah. if somebody wants to get into it, you don't have to start with the Hellboy, if you want to start from the beginning of the of a bigger story, start with um, the BPRD Plague of Frogs omnibuses. They you can get hardcover ones, but they also have them in paperback, and they're very affordable. And they're they're published by Dark Horse, and Dark Horse like if you go on um, InStockTrades.com, uh, Dark Horse is always like forty two percent off on there. Um, and even if you can't find it there, because I. I've looked around for stuff on there some recently, and it seems like they're the stuff they have available is less than it used to be. So I think they're probably, um, you know, feeling the uh, the the pain of what the pandemic has done to all of us, uh, business wise. But um, you get on, get them on Amazon, or you know, get them from even if you pay full price at your bookstore. I think they're like twenty five dollar cover price, and you get like it's well well worth the material that you get. But start there. There's four volumes of that, and then um, they're starting to release those kind of omnibuses with BPRD Hell on Earth, which is a good way to go because the individual trades of BPRD Hell on Earth are, like, I think they're like eighteen dollar cover prices. So like, why not wait till the omnibuses get published and get yeah, an the omnibus? Yeah, the omnibuses seem way better. They're yeah, way better go way to go for that stuff. Yeah, and they're they're not they're paperback omnibuses. Um, the Hell on Earth ones. The the they have Hellboy ones also. There's four volumes that collect. All of Hellboy and Hellboy in Hell, and um, they're paperback. So, like some people, like oh, you know, gotta get hardcovers, but they're affordable, very affordable. Uh, the Hellboy collects it in reading order, which is let me tell you, is very useful because when I was trying to read Hellboy as like floppies, super difficult if you don't know if you don't have a list to go off of because there's no guiding force in it. You know, like there's nothing that really makes it clear what to read when. Um, but yeah, so like that's that's a whole series. Like, there's different ways you can dive into it. Um, but like, if you read BPRD and you love it, you can probably then go read Hellboy and appreciate one the art of it and two what it adds to the story that you're already engaged with. You know, so there's yeah, I think I would like it more now having uh, since I've all read all of BPRD and I kind of know what the world is capable of, of providing. I think I might uh, like it a lot more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, you second my opinion there. So what's your next one? Uh, my next one, this is going to be self-indulgent, but uh, Larry Hama's G.I. Joe run from Marvel, the original one, uh, and particularly like the first 100 issues, I would say, that run. Uh, yeah, that a lot nice of people say... <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, some people say the first 50 issues are really the best, but uh, for me, I really loved it up through about issue 100. So for me, that's uh, that's that's a pick. It, it's, I mean, probably objectively isn't belong in the pantheon of like really great top 10 
properties or runs or, or whatever, but it really hits it for me. And I think it exceeds its mandate in terms of being about a toy action figure. It definitely provides more to the storytelling than that in that it develops a lot of long-running stories uh, a lot of internal continuity that it respects and remembers as well and just it actually develops all these different joe characters it takes time to actually give them different personalities and uh, it's a lot of what really brought gi joe to life for me i don't think i would be such a fan of G.I. Joe, if not for those comics. And I've read that entire run a, a couple times now and really, really love it. So that's it's it really is the thing that made Joe extend from just being a childhood toy that I liked to being something that I'm uh, a fan of now still in life. Yeah, and, you know... Uh, like one thing I want to say is top 10 list. Like anybody who says a top 10 list is like the definitive or the correct answers is that's silly. Like it's so subjective. So like if it's your top 10, that makes your list and that's all that matters. And that's, that's also how people get exposed to different stuff is by hearing different opinions. So like, um, you know, I'll, I'll end up putting Ninja Turtles on my list. I'll get into that in a second. But, uh, I've read some of that uh, run of G.I. Joe. It's actually, I think, all available on, on uh, Comixology Unlimited right now, at be, least. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's where I read it was on Comixology Unlimited, um, and I'd like to read more. Um, for me to pick something like that up, and I, I was reading the IDW G.I. Joe, so it's not like I hadn't dug into G.I. Joe a little bit uh, before trying to read it, um, but it was enjoyable. Like, uh, the stories are, you know, for are clever um the characters, like once again, it goes back to character. If you can start to feel attachment to the characters, that's where it goes a long way, you know. And you have the ones that are easy to attach to, like Snake Eyes is always going to be badass, and Cobra Commander is always going to be, you know, a cool villain. Um, but then you start to get to know the other characters, and I know, like later on in that run, because for a long time nobody dies right but then eventually, yeah. like you get a Joe that dies, and then like, oh yeah, it was a big deal yeah. when they did. You have yeah, to that's care not about the issue for like, that to matter. Yeah, it's like issue 108 or 109, I think, when characters first start to die. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I I think that's a great entry. Like, I don't think I would say that for mine, but I could see if I if I continue reading it, I think that would be something I could easily argue on mine, too, even with not having grown up love G.I. Joe, because if you can read through 100 issues of something, it's definitely doing something right. Um, so, uh, to go, you know, next one I'll put on my list uh, off of that is Ninja Turtles. Um, I love them because I love the property. Uh, but I've read, uh, a lot of the original Mirage run. I've read at least some of every iteration of it. Um, and I, like, I could even split it up into two entries if I really wanted to argue it that way, but I'll just put it together because it seems silly to also, like, take up that much. But the the Mirage run, the storyline that is the best is, uh, I think, City at War, which is the, the final 13 issues of that original run. Um, Eastman and Laird, like, if anybody knows their history, basically they don't like each other. Uh, and they started <laughs> yeah. not liking each other back when they were still working on that original run. And then they they split ways, and there's a lot of story as to kind of how the you know Ninja Turtles kept on getting produced from that point. But they they didn't like each other, and they got uh, 
back together to work together on that last 13 issue story and like them working together on the original Mirage Turtles like that's that's the peak of it like anything that they're doing together is is the best of what that is there's other stories that maybe either just one of them is involved with or that even neither of them are because that's one of the things about the Ninja Turtle properties it's really like they always intended to get other people working on it as it grew you know um but so like if you want to go back to the original run like there's plenty of good stuff of course but like that that is a bigger story that is um like everything you would want basically from it uh, aside from uh well no i won't say that um but then beyond okay. that the idw run which is now over 100 issues it has been great and i don't think it like if you do not care about ninja turtles you're probably not going to want to bother reading it Unless, I mean, like, I started reading IDW G.I. Joe just from a vague interest and being curious, and my enjoyment grew. So, like, if you're open-minded to it, yes, you could get into it and, you know, find enjoyment there. But, you know, I think if you're like, I hate the Ninja Turtles, you're not going to read this and be like, oh, no, I see the where the value is. But if you're, like, either open-minded or you like the Ninja Turtles at all, like, it's a great story that's been ongoing for a long time with lots of different elements, lots of different arcs. Um, and, uh, like, I've... I've been clearly enjoying it for a long time. Not It's not even just only 100 issues of the story. It's 100 issues of the main title. But they have literally always had a secondary title running of some sort. So if they're over 100 issues of the main title, that means that they're over 200 issues in total with building this whole world. And... Like, I think that, like, that kind of longevity, the fact that they continue to make compelling stories, and that they didn't even um, hit any of the easy things to do to draw readers in, or I should say any of the easiest things to do, um, until they hit around 100 issues. I don't know if I should say what it is or not. Uh, I, I guess it shouldn't matter. Like, anybody who's reading it, like, if you don't know what happened around issue 100, like... It's been enough issues that it shouldn't be a spoiler, but um, Splinter gets killed off. Oh, at the hundredth oh, yeah. at the hundredth issue, he sacrifices himself actually to save Orokusaki for hit to defeat a greater evil, basically. But so it ends with at the hundredth issue with Splinter dying, and you know earlier on in the series, like around issue fifty, I think it was forty something. Donatello, you think, got killed. They end up saving him. Crazy stories happen, and eventually he ends up back in his own body. But, like, that was one where they took, okay, like, the death of a turtle, and they do something crazy with it, you know? And then they had another part where they actually, they created a fifth turtle, and Jenica became part of the the greater Ninja Turtle family. But, yeah, I mean, for them to go that long, and they didn't, like, at some point start doing the easy things and just killing off characters left and right, and, they, like, quite a few characters have died, uh, over that run, but it hasn't been, uh, okay, let's just easily throw these, you know, wood chips into the fire and, you know, burn it too quickly. Like, it's been done in a good way. It's always nice when stories exceed their mandate, I, I think. Like, I think that that sounds similar to what I was saying about the, yeah. the G.I. Joe. That's a that, good term, too. I like that term. A, a story exceeding their mandate. That's a very good way to, like, to impart why a story like Ninja Turtles or G.I. Joe is more than just, like, you can't just narrow it down to, like, look at how high art this part is, but the yeah, greater scope. And, yeah, because I think 
it would be the easy thing to do is just tell a G.I. Joe story or a Ninja Turtle story where with the Ninja Turtles, oh, they have to defeat Shredder again and his foot soldiers and, oh, this time there's Rocksteady and Bebop and let's show them again, right? Or with G.I. Joe, it could easily just be, ah, oh, Cobra has another diabolical plan to try to take over the world. We better stop it, you know, but when they manage to exceed that basic storytelling and tell stories that have more character to them and more interesting nuance to them and and they just they they take that extra care i i feel like that's when it starts to really exceed its mandate and that's i think uh really great for these types of property things because it, it seems like a lot of times they're built on this premise of you like this thing, so let's just make a story about this thing. But when they say, no, that's not good enough, let's tell a really, really good story and uh, take it from there. So uh, I, I think that those those are similar entries, but I think and they're they're on the list for similar reasons. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so what's your next one? All right. My next one is Ben Edlund's Tick Run. This is 12 issues of black and white comics, but I still think it is the best humor and parody comic that I have read. I think it is, it's hilarious. It's well done, very well drawn, and it, it is the best tick that I think exists. There's been a lot of Tick since then. There have been other Tick comics. There have been Tick TV shows. I think several of them now. But none of them capture what those original 12 issues that were written and drawn by Ben Edlund had in them. And I was, I'm was i such a, a big fan of those 12 issues. I've never really been able to get into any of the TV shows or any of the other comics that have come after because they all have failed in comparison to uh that original comic run for me and so uh it's it's kind of this double-edged thing where it's it's the height of it but it's also kind of sad because i can't really enjoy anything that came after it because the the original was was so good but i i do think that that those 12 is just great and i don't own any other tick other than those 12 issues but i've got all of those 12 issues that that's a good one. You're gonna have to remind me of that um, later so I can write it down. Because uh, I've I've always wanted to dabble a little bit in the tick, but I haven't um, before. So like, kind of going to the the best material would definitely be the way for me to check it out. That made me think of one that wasn't on my mind, uh, which is what makes this fun. Is we have different things pop, pop in our heads, but Usagi Ojimbo, uh, which not only is it a you know a good story and a good comic to read, uh, but what's amazing about it is Stan Sakai has been doing that, like, 100% on his own, uh, aside from, you know, like, colorists or, you know, maybe a little bit of something else here and there, but that's it's it's him. It's not like, you know, him and an artist or, like, he's the artist and somebody else is writing. Like, he writes it, he draws it for, I don't know the exact number of issues, but hundreds of issues. It was first published by Fantagraphics, and there's, uh, I think, six graphic novels. It's either six or seven graphic novels that collect that portion of it. Um, and then Dark Horse, it ran, um, I know it was over 150 issues before they left Dark Horse and went to, now they're uh, being published um, by Image? No, no, um, IDW. There we go. 
It's like image isn't right. They're they're being published by IDW now, and they're uh, twelve issues into that, I think. Um, you know, and there's been a little bit of side story stuff as well. But so I mean, definitely over two hundred issues of one person creating the same thing, and the stories are still high quality. The art is high quality. Um, once again, the supporting characters that you grow attached to there's like a wide breadth of characters that you care about in it and that's definitely critical like you can't have one character that matters in a bunch of fodder you know um but uh usagi is not only is it something that i love i got into it because of ninja turtles because there's an association there and a friend of mine who was in the ninja turtles kept on saying you should check out usagi ojimbo um i finally did and just like kind of fell head over heels and i still haven't read it all like i'm still working through it because there's so much material you know uh, but not only that, but Usagi's what got me into other samurai stuff. So, and 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 it was it's what opened the door to manga for me too. So like it opened a lot of doors for me. I have quite a few uh, you know classic samurai movies and collections that I've gotten, and it stems back to this. Um, I have I'm working through reading a very long story in um, Lone Wolf and Cub because of this. I started spreading out to some other. Uh, samurai type manga because of this that eventually is what had the door open enough for me to start checking out other manga in general which I, I might not have ever done if it wasn't for this so like to have something that not only you love that but then to see how many doors it opens for you into other things that you end up loving and become a big part of your 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 conscious and you know all that I think says a ton um, so yeah Usagi Ojimba is on my list I, are we gonna make it all the way through ten? I I think honestly, like I've got five, and I can easily fill this out, and I'll probably forget stuff. Oh, I'm just thinking time wise. Uh, let's just speed up then. Okay. All right. All right. Next on mine uh, is Sandman. Yep. Okay. That's, There's one of mine too. <laughs> so yeah. I'm up to six I mean, now. We've, yeah, we we've spent a whole episode just talking about San, the first volume of Sandman and why it's great, and I think we would eventually like to get to uh, nine more. So. You know, yeah, definitely. We don't need to spend a lot of time on Sandman because we spent plenty there. But yeah, the, the art, the story, yeah. the characters, yeah, I mean, definite uh, a big slam dunk there on my part. Yeah, one of the best for a reason. Yeah, that put that puts me like my my list is quickly growing. Like I'm up to six with that. Um, mind management. That's uh, that'll put my list up to seven. Um, I love that Matt Kent. You know, once again, like he did that start to finish. That's him. Art story. Uh, I feel like his wife did the coloring on that, uh, which is like that's also really cool. Like, you know, husband and wife team rather than like I have to pay some other colorist uh, that isn't as you know closely associated. I don't know. Like, I just think that kind of stuff is cool. But like, great story. I love Matt Kent. Um, t- that's like peak Matt Kent uh, in my mind. Um, and we've talked about that before too. So next up, yeah. Oh, am I? I'm going again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next is Planetary. Uh, written by Warren Ellis, art by John Cassidy. This is, I think, one of the greatest things in comics ever. I I really think that it is um, so imaginative, and it is basically it, it's in some ways a. Uh, just a tour of genre fiction and it's a way of just kind of exploring all these different aspects of genre fiction but I think at the same time it's a big statement about comic books and the history of comic books and superhero comic books and 
what role they should and shouldn't have in the industry. Uh, the art is beautiful and stunning, and it has just a, a single art team throughout, which is fantastic. I think that that makes it just feel really, really cohesive. And um, I, I think it's one of the better, more important comics that has ever uh, existed. I, I think it's kind of similar to Watchmen for me in terms of its poignancy and importance in the overall uh, set of works of comics. Nice. Yeah, and it's one, yeah. like, you've talked about that one before a little more in depth also. Um, yeah, I, I I certainly don't feel the same way about it. Like, I've I've tried to read a little bit here and there, but not that hard. Um, and it's something that just, like, hearing how people talk about it, I'll have to, like, actually give it a, a good effort at some point. Um, my next one, uh, I'm going to say Rachel Rising by Terry Moore. Um, I like mm. everything that Terry Moore's done. Strangers in Paradise is the the bigger one. Like that, that would be uh, like I said, mind management is like uh, peak Matt Kent as like his you know magnum opus. Um, Sip would be that for Terry Moore, but I like Rachel Rising better because one, the story's a little more concise. Um, it's uh, like six trades. Uh, I believe um, I got it all on a sale on, on Comixology where I got like the whole shebang. So like, that's why I read it all. That's what got me into Terry Moore. Um, but I, I think the, the story stays more compelling because it's a little more um, focused because like there's a, a, like a clearer start and end to it, you know? Um, yeah. But the characters are great. The characters, like all of his books, like are in the same world. So like they appear elsewhere, you know, and they, they come together um, but I loved Rachel Rising, uh, a horror comic, um, that, you know, I used to say I didn't like horror and like, the, I started realizing how many comic stories were adding up that are horror stories that I loved. And I realized that I just like, I needed a good story, not just, you know, gore. Um, but yeah, I love Rachel Rising, um, really easy to get into characters that are, you know, really pull you in, uh, and, and make you love it. Even if it's not the protagonist, um, you know, cause sometimes like you just can't engage with the protagonist in a book, which I don't think that's the case here for me, but like, I see other people just be like, eh, about the protagonist character. Um, yeah. So like, I, like I'm going to say Rachel Rising as far as Terry Moore goes, I will say that the, the first trade of Strangers in Paradise, I think is something amazing. And there's a lot of amazingness as you keep going in Strangers in Paradise. Um, but I also feel like a lot of times, because it, it ran so long, that there are times where it it spreads out too much and has like too much room to breathe and not telling enough story. Or sometimes the for the stories feel a little a little forced to me rather than uh, being as uh, organic. Which I mean, that's just my opinion. I know plenty of other people wouldn't feel that way. So um, yeah, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So that, that's my eighth one on my list. Okay, all right. Next up for me is uh, another Warren Ellis thing, which is uh, Authority, especially specifically the Warren Ellis run on Authority. And I think that this it's one of those where, you know, one one thing I always look at, uh, are you much of like a art fan, like fine art? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been exposed to lots of art, and I've always enjoyed okay. it. Like, I wouldn't say I'm... I'm it's one of those things that, like, I don't have this, like, great store of information in my head, but, like, I can go and dig deeper into art um, when I have the opportunity to, you know? One thing I always think about is um, Malevich's paintings. And Malevich was a supremacist 
and this is not supremacist in the the way that it's been thrown around uh lately with uh racial overtones but supremacist in the sense of he was he was looking for the supreme supremacy of the basicness of art he was trying to come up with like the supreme art and his art is a lot of stuff where it's like a white square within a white square on a canvas or just just a single panel of one color because he was saying that this is the the su- supremacy of this idea of what art can be it's one of these things that i a lot of people that don't know art history will look at and say well i mean anyone can do that right that's that's so simple like i could do that i could take a canvas and paint it white that's that's kind of uh silly but what makes him great is that nobody had done that before and nobody thought to do that before he was the first one that actually did it and he by doing that kind of created this idea that this is what uh art can be and i think that authority is similar in that it's easy to read now and say like oh everybody's doing that that's simple but the thing is nobody really had done it before and i think that a lot of the superhero comic storytelling in the last 20 years really comes out of what was being done in authority in terms of the way stories were told in this kind of widescreen quote-unquote storytelling with much more of like movie sensibilities to how stories are told a lot of that i think really was developed and created in the authority and i think that there's um a lot of distinct changes that happened in comics because of authority. So I I think of it kind of as that Malevich painting that in retrospect, it's easy to see how it doesn't look that impressive. But when you look at it in the context of what it, it did for art, uh, it is very impressive. Yeah. It, it opens your mind to something else. And then once you know that possibility is there, it's easy to get diluted. But like the first thing that cracks you open to, to new possibilities is, is, uh, something amazing. Yeah. Um, my, my next one, I mentioned this earlier, but I, it's kind of that sort of thing, uh, where it opened my eyes to, uh, something different in a different way. And that's why it stands as special to me is, um, as Matt Fraction and David Aha's Hawkeye run. It was comics mm, done cool. in a different way than I was used to. Like, to me, that's the epitome of here's a character that we don't give a crap about. Do whatever the heck you want. And then the creators are able to do something special because, um, you know, th- the powers that be stay out of the way. And, like, that's a special run to me. And it opened me up to uh, to not just thinking that, okay, if I'm going to read superhero comics, I got to read the characters, you know, like the property or characters that matter the most to me. So, like, I didn't just stick with X-Men. Um, I finally gave that a try and I regretted not trying it sooner. And it's, it's had my mind more open to finding those moments of greatness. Um, like right now, a couple of Marvel things that I think, um, are examples where like the creators are really able to run with what they want to do is, uh, the immortal Hulk everybody's talking about. Um, and, uh, what Chip Zdarsky is doing with Daredevil. And obviously Daredevil is kind of a character that's been made key because at one point in the past, it was a character they didn't give a crap about, and they gave it to Frank Miller. You know, we both have Uncanny X Men, you know, Claremont's run on our list, and it's the same thing. You know, so like for for newer comics, because I read this Hawkeye before I ever went back and read Claremont's X Men, 
um, that was the one that kind of opened uh, opened my eyes to those things. Yeah, so that's my ninth on my list. What's your next one? All right, so next up for me is anybody that knows my podcasting history will know that I have published hundreds of episodes about Valiant Comics. And that is really the fault of one particular run in comics history, and that would be pre-Unity Valiant. Those first uh, 60 or so issues of Valiant Comics that were first published in the 1991 and 1992, that's what made me a Valiant fan. Yeah. That's what made me love all of the original Valiant. It's what made me collect all the original classic Valiant stuff. It's what made me so rabidly excited about the new Valiant when it started up. It is, I think, that that is the thing that made me the fan that I am today of Valiant Comics. It all comes from that pre-Unity era. And I think if that pre-Unity era didn't exist, I wouldn't be a fan. I think it would just be like cross-gen or um, Malibu or uh, Ultraverse, one of those types of things where I was like, oh, yeah, that existed, but I, I don't really care about it very much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that was special in that. I mean, for me, I went backwards to that after becoming a fan of the the you know twenty twelve relaunch of Valiant. Um, but that that is what kind of got me into comics, like uh, in a more permanent way, was that era of Valiant. And I went back to the old stuff, and that stuff that's pre Unity is special. Unity is a very special event in how it was done. Even if um, you could definitely like look at some some flaws in in storytelling with um with their method of having everything so involved but even then like it's just all it's all you know well done and and good um yeah that's i I was trying to think of valiant if there's anything i would want to say on my list i decided not to um but i think that that is probably the like the specialist thing you could say about any of valiant is that you could definitely say some special stuff about the relaunch too but um, I, I opted not to put any Valiant on my list because I think for me, uh, the specialness of Valiant was more of the overall experience with, you know, the friends I made, the connections with fans, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, rather than like the specialness of a certain story. Yeah, um, I can understand that. I'm going to wrap up my list and I'm sure there's the, things that, huh? The, the one thing I, I want to oh, say about that is for, for me, like, I, I think we both had that experience of, of the specialness of the fandom and making friends and uh, all, all of that happening. Because um, I, I think we, we, we both very uniquely had uh, somewhat of a, a prominent position within that fandom. You with Valiant Central and me with only the Valiant. And, and so, you know, a lot of that really was the reason for a lot of that specialness was just that fandom, how everyone interacted, how many friendships were formed. Uh, I guess I just have the experience of like, it's the pre unity is what made me the fan that made me kind of launch into that. Um, and so that's why it really has that special place for me. Yeah. And always will. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you say that too, that like you and I both had a legitimate impact on, 
the fandom of a thing. Like that's weird. <laughs> you know, I mean, you guys like uh, your podcast was like the the Godfather Rebellion podcast. Like you guys were doing that way before the relaunch even happened. Um, so like you guys definitely uh, hold a special place in history. Um, I, yeah, yeah, that that's it's kind of an interesting story yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about, about that because well, I I wanted to start a podcast. Uh, this was like back in 2008, I think. And I was like, well, uh, there's too many Star Wars podcasts already, but there's no Valiant podcast. So I'll do one about Valiant <laughs> was kind of how that started. And at the time, Dinesh was saying, oh, yeah, we'll probably be publishing in like 2009 sometimes. So <laughs> I was thinking, all right, I'm going to start this podcast. And in six months, when the new Valiant books are out, I'll, I'll be ready to go. You know, I'll be like positioned and primed <laughs> for it. And then four years later, <laughs> we're still waiting for books to come out. So <laughs> it was, that was uh, in, in some ways uh, a fluke that we were uh, at, at so established and been around for so long by the time the 2012 launch even happened. That's awesome. <laughs> um all right, well, my last book I'm going to wrap up my list with um, is I'm going to say uh, Essex County by Jeff Lemire. Um, oh, that's a good Yeah, one. I've liked a lot of his oh, stuff, but yeah. that book to me is the one that um, – it wasn't the first one that I read, but that's the one that is the the best of what Jeff Lemire does, just like the pure emotion. Like it's such a simple book, and that's a book that it took me a while to give it a chance because um, – because I mean, kind of like I was saying about like modern comic art, like it's so easy to be spoiled by the you know the the highly rendered and colored, and you know it's like it was hard for me to read a black and white comic and and you know open my mind and give it a chance. But that's the comic that um, kind of opened the door to not being closed minded about something because it's just black and white or because the the style is uh, more simplistic. And now I definitely have a great, much greater appreciation for um, more unique styles of art. Uh, and I think Jeff Lemire and, uh, and Matt Kent, like they both just really fit into that category of, of very unique art styles that nobody else is like that. Um, but Essex County, just the, that story was just dripping with heart, dripping with emotion and a lot of sadness. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that you read and you leave and you just feel down afterwards. Like you're just being exposed to tons of sadness, but it feels real. And so it feels like more cathartic than, you know, negative. Um, yeah, I think that that's a book that for me showed that comic books can have as impactful storytelling as m- movies and novels. And, yeah. y- you know, it's just a matter uh, of of doing it because, yeah, that is definitely a very impactful story. Yeah. So I don't know if you've kept track of how many you would consider to be part of your top 10. Um, I do because I, I, I actually uh, – I've been writing them down. Okay. <laughs> so how many so spots ha- do you have left right now? I have three spots left. Okay. So I, I've filled out my top 10 with whatever came out of my head. Um, so the floor is yours to fill out your list. All right. I'm just going to blow through these for the sake of time and for the sake of getting to breakfast because I'm, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, we're about to go to lunch after this too. <laughs> nice. I'm going to say the, the first half of Fables, the first 75 issues, it's all about the um, Fable Town fight against the adversary. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, just a, a fantastic story. It's, it's a great example of how you can tell multiple really good stories within the context of one longer overarching story and just 
developed great yeah. characters and s- such such a good read when those were coming out i was buying them by the trade but it was one where i was anxiously waiting for each new trade to come out so i could keep like read the next part of the story yeah i gotta give that a yeah. good shot my wife uh, read a lot of fables like we were getting her trade after trade and i kept on like digging in a certain depth and then stopping and then having to start back over because i had too long of a gap in between um, mm, one of the things uh-huh. I liked about Fables is it's a, you know, a comic that has adult content without in any way, shape or form feeling dirty. And yeah. um, I mm-hmm. like I like that. You know, it's like, you know, it's nice to get to like have those adult elements without it being like, um, you know, I mean, forced, you know, like here's nudity. Let's let's exaggerate it. No, it's just like it's incidental in the story. You know, here's profanity. Here's violence, whatever. It's like it's part of the story, not, you know aggrandized yeah proceed okay one more uh or this is one of two more jim starlin's cosmic books from the 70s and this is particularly captain marvel and warlock they are just weird and crazy and look like they are a drug trip printed on the page and just a, a ton of weird crazy fun it brought Captain Marvel around to being a, a great character. It, it really brought Warlock to the forefront and made him a fantastic character. It brought, it created Thanos, uh, the Infinity Gems, the Cosmic Cube, all this stuff that was just these um, big, huge stories that have had huge repercussions throughout the rest of the Marvel Universe because of, of what they were. And uh, it just so fun and imaginative and weird and it's one of those like you were saying how you had to get used to reading claremont's x-men i think it's similar you need to it takes some time to get used to the storytelling of the the like early to mid 70s that was being um done there and it is just it's just really fun once once you read it all nice so i i really dig that yeah Mostly I dig it just for its, like, weirdness and creativity and zaniness. All right. And last, uh, Bone. Oh, that's a good one. I could have put that on my list, too. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like this makes the list because this is one where I feel like I could give it to anybody and say you'll enjoy it. Whether they're, like, a a child, an adult, uh, man, woman, anything in between. It's just, like, wherever you are in life, it's just an enjoyable story for everyone one of the great things i could say about bone is there are three specific moments i can off the top of my head and they they're contained within just a panel or two probably two to three panels maybe each um that are great moments that they're so simple but so well done the first one is um when it's like winter is falling and then like it's thwomp all the snow falls all at once Oh, such yeah. a simple thing, but it's like that. That's an awesome moment. Like that was like the first moment I think in Bone that I was just like, oh my gosh, this is good. Second one, he's running away from the rat creatures and he jumps this little branch and he's like, "There's no way they'll try to jump here because it'll be all of our death." And then they jump on the branch and he just looks at them, and goes, "Stupid, stupid rat creatures!" And the branch breaks and they all fall. Yeah, so well done. And the look on the rat creatures' face too, like they look like an ashamed cat when they do something dumb. Um, and it's just it's so perfectly done. The third one, uh, Bone is getting in some kind of an argument with a little tiny bug and yelling at him because he's much, much bigger. And then that little tiny bug's big buddy comes up and is like, is this guy being a problem? 
Uh, <laughs> so simple. Like the yeah. bug is just like this really simple big shape, but it's just like oh, it's so perfect and it's so simply done. And that that's like the epitome of what makes Bone so special. When you can like clearly remember clear specific points in a story like that, and you're not like here's the overarching story that is told. You know, it's like no, this one little moment was special. And like I think Bone hits that better than anything I've ever seen. Yeah, Bone is just so well done and so uh such a fun story that I think is bigger than just comics. It's it's great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I haven't read it in a long time. Yeah, me neither. I, sh- I should read that, it again. That's yeah. yeah, I should definitely give that one a full go through again. Um awesome. Well, I I think we'll start wrapping up now for the sake of we've gone a lot longer than I expected even and I I think we've learned a little bit about how this will flow in the future. So now we'll uh yeah, execute yeah. it I, a little I, bit I, better. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I think so. I think this probably could have been two episodes easily. Yeah, yeah, definitely could have. We're we're getting close to hitting 2 hours here and usually we're aiming for an hour and we quite often overshoot that aim. Uh but yeah, this was uh, this was a lot of fun. I think it's fun to to look at things in a different way like this. Like I know we're both going to kick ourselves about stuff that we forgot to mention on our top 10 list, um, but that's kind of the point of doing it this way. It's just a challenge to think of things and not get stuck in the, this has to be perfect. Um, but yeah, so uh, give us feedback, and, you know, either things you want us to do a top 10 about um, or just what you thought or what might be your top 10 in any of the things that we discussed. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Who's Paul. Uh, you can find Sean on Twitter at Bad Deacon. Uh, Sean, I will let you uh, talk us out the rest of the way. Sure. And if you're listening to this, you probably know where to listen to it. But we are on the Apple Podcasts and the, the Stitchers and the Spotify and uh, pretty much everything else. So go listen to all the rest of our episodes and smash that subscribe button so that you never miss two hours of us rambling about 10 random things (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks for listening talk to you next time